Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Grams. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,191 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 42 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thank you for being joining us today. As you can tell, we're not at Putnam Congregational Church. We had a problem with the video equipment this morning, so I'm recording this at home in our library after the fact. But I do appreciate you joining us today for our message on January 8, 2023. Now, last week, we continued our series on the messages of the good news according to John the Apostle. We looked at the reactions to the resurrected Lord. And the question that we finished with last week was, what is my reaction to the resurrected Lord? Now, the disciples were convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. And today we see that they struggle because they're faced with a quite different scenario than what they anticipated. They expected to rule and reign with the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And now this was in limbo. And our scripture today is John chapter 21, verses 1 through 23. And it's about their ministry after the resurrection. So follow along with me. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 23. <clears throat> Jesus and the miraculous catch of fish. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I am going to fish. Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went and got into their boats, but they caught nothing all that night. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, and the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals, and and there were some fish on it, and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dare ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now Jesus reinstates Peter. When they had finished eating, Peter, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. 
A third time he said to him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said, this will indi- Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death that Peter would glorify God. He said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the other disciples whom Jesus loved was following them. This was one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper when he had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked him, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain until I uh, remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that the disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Now, when Peter first met Jesus and responded as called to follow some three plus years ago, he probably thought that he was doing the Messiah a great favor. The new king of Israel would need a man like him, a bold, brave, take charge leader of men. He was strong, decisive, a hard worker, quick with a blade, and even quicker to decide what should be done and how to do it. Peter was the kind of man who got things done by sheer force of will. After he failed in the courtyard during Jesus' trial, Peter was not so high on himself. He undoubtedly winced every time he recalled his impulsive commitment in the upper room. In John 13, 37, he said, but why can't I go come? But why can't I come now, Lord? He asked. I'm ready to die for you. Indeed, when surrounded by the 600 men in the garden, he was ready to take them on with a blade only slightly larger than a dagger. But he feared for his life. In the courtyard, he lied like a coward. Failure of any kind. Failure of any kind is difficult enough to overcome. But moral failure in a ministry is a real killer. It's a hindrance blunder, one might ask. What good can I do now? The answer to these questions may be surprising. As we look at verses 1 through 3, we have to realize where this setting takes place. Now, Jerusalem was down toward the southern part of Israel, and then Galilee was toward the northern part. And this takes place at Capernaum, where Peter, James, and John used to have a fishing business with his parents. Now, John establishes the setting of this event in Galilee. And sometime after Jesus confronted Thomas, as we looked at last week, in or near Jerusalem, Capernaum was where they previously had their fishing business. We have no other way, we have no way of knowing how long it was after Thomas's encounter with Jesus, but we do know that it had to be probably within a month because there was only 40 days between the resurrection and Pentecost, as, as we know from Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Now, five of the 12 disciples are named, while the other two disciples are left anonymous. Perhaps they were not one of the 12, or, but regardless, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, which Jesus had nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, shared much of the history in this region. There was Jesus. This was where Jesus extended his call. He called them to follow, to become fishers of men, in Mark chapter 1, verse 17. For at least three years, 
the men followed the Messiah, learning daily from him, fully expecting for him to reign as the king of the Jews. Then suddenly, in a matter of hours, everything changed. There, he was arrested. He was tried. He was judged. He was crucified. He was laid in a tomb where his followers of Jesus saw their Messiah. They buried him with the, fond- the, with the fondest expectations with him. And when he emerged from the tomb, their dreams were left behind, along with his grave clothes. The long, quiet period undoubtedly became an eerie state of limbo for them. The Messiah died, but he was no longer dead. But they were used to being with him constantly for over three years before his crucifixion. Jesus communed with them on a remarkable, intimate level during his three-plus years. But before the coming of the Holy Spirit, they didn't know what to do with this time where Jesus wasn't with them constantly. The coming of the kingdom was not what they had all, at all hoped. So it remained shapeless, unfixed. The future for them was unknown. Human nature cannot abide in limbo for very long. So when you cannot move forward, you tend to go back to return to that which is familiar, even a past that you were happy to leave at one point. As the old adage goes, you can never go home again. So even though home has not changed or may not have changed, but it always does, you have changed. So things will never be the same as it was when you were a child and you return home as an adult. But Peter didn't know what else to do. He was familiar with fishing from his occupation prior to Jesus' calling. So he says, I'm going fishing. And it was not merely a plan to pass an unbearable meantime until Jesus gave him further instructions. Peter, ever the man of action, saw no future for himself with his service to Christ because he thought that aspect was over. Christ was not going to come to establish his kingdom now. So he returned to a successful pre-Christ vocation. But unfortunately, Peter's efforts to catch fish fared no better than when Jesus originally called them in Luke chapter 5, verse 10. So we move on to verses 4 through 6. One of the qualities about the Lord that I love most is His grace. Now, just not in a theological sense. I mean that charming matter of accepting and loving His own. Peter and his friends returned to that which was familiar to them, so the Lord met them where they were. He didn't require them to come back to Jerusalem. He met them where they were. And he even used their overdependence on the past to their mutual advantage. The Lord questioned that was rendered in Greek, friends, haven't you any fish? It anticipates a negative response, not unlike saying, so you haven't caught anything, right? Moreover, it's taken from a Greek word called paedia, and it's the plural form of a word that means a small child. And according to one lexicon, it denotes even a servant of social position, and figuratively, it carries a sense of an undeveloped understanding. So a children may not understand fully all the aspects of life because they have a limited understanding. And this was what Jesus was calling to them. But it also used an affectionate address. Friends, haven't you any fish? It was like saying, my children, don't you know what's really going on here? You don't fully understand. The disciples had been in this situation before. If you remember at the beginning of Christ's ministry, these men had spent a wasted night at the sea when Jesus instructed them to once again recast their nets. When their obedience netted them a record catch of fish at that point, it was similar success in their ministry as he became, they became a fisher of men. 
After so much had happened, the resurrected Lord instructed them again to recast their nets. Surely one of the men must have suspected this stranger to be Jesus on shore. Once at the top line of the nets stretched and it was full of fish and they could hardly pull it in, they had no doubts that indeed the man on the shore that was calling to them was Jesus. And let's not forget the full context of this event. As some have suggested, Jesus not only instructed a a large school of fish from 100 yards out, he couldn't see that far out probably, but he was a creator. If he wanted to, he could have created them instantaneously to appear beside the boat. At least he had them school beside the boat so they would be placed in that net. He once caused those fish He caused those fish to be where the disciples dropped their net on the right side of the boat. Now, as we move on to verses 7 and 8, the phrase in that passage saying that Peter had taken off his outer garment, it didn't mean that Peter was naked in the boat. He merely removed his outer robe and then girded up his inner linings as undergarments between his legs and around his waist so he could fish more efficiently. Then, in characteristic Peter style, He plunged into the sea after putting his outer cloak back on. He was delighted to see his master once again, and he wanted to be the first one to get there. Meanwhile, the other disciples were left to pull in this full net of fish. And we look now at verse 9. John includes some very interesting details about this. John includes three important details. First, Jesus had prepared a charcoal fire. Now, this is a deliberate allusion to Peter's failure in the courtyard which occurred as he warmed himself with a charcoal fire in John chapter 18, verse 18. Second, Jesus had fish cooking on the fire. The Lord did not depend on their efforts, the disciples' efforts of humanity to accomplish his will. And third, Jesus had the loaves of bread waiting for them. The wilderness in which Jesus fed the multitude, those 5,000 with five loaves and two small fish lay right behind where they were, up in the hillside beyond the shore. So it was a clear allusion to this. Now, as we move on to verses 10 and 11, in his impulsive exuberance, Peter left the other disciples to haul in the load of fish. He left them all alone while he went and sprinted or swam toward the Lord. In Jesus' invitation, though, for him, Peter, to add fish to his catch, this was significant. He wanted them to participate in the ministry. Jesus didn't want to do it all his own. He wanted those disciples to participate. And while the Lord can do all things without help from anyone, he invited Peter to contribute the fruit of their efforts. The Lord wants us to enjoy victory as we accomplish it together, not because he needs us, but because he wants us. In the series that will start after next week's message, when we conclude the Gospel of John, we will look at this a series called, What Does God Want? And we'll explore what God really wants from us as his family. And so Peter turned to the nets, returned to the nets with his comrades and and processed an extraordinary result of divine help given with human effort. He had 153 large fish. Now that number does have a significance, but that's not the purpose of our message for today. Maybe we'll go into that some other time. As we move on to verses 12 through 14 of John chapter 21, John clarifies that the men knew that they were in the presence of the Lord. And his image of Jesus distributing the bread and the fish 
was no accident. It was a clear allusion to the abundance he created in the wilderness when he fed those 5,000 in John chapter 6, verse 11. It also notes that this was the third time that Jesus appeared after his resurrection. Now, term means not just to be seen. It means to make visible what was not previously seen. If you remember back to last week's message, Jesus appeared in a room that was locked with his disciples twice, once on the resurrection eve and also on a week later when he appeared to Thomas and the disciples. So here he appeared almost instantaneously. In verse 15 through 17 now, as if to take Peter back to the beginning, before he called him the rock, Peter, Jesus looked across that charcoal fire as they ate and he addressed those, that dejected, dejected disciple that he had originally given the name Peter. But then in this passage, he says, Simon, son of John. Now, Simon is based on a Hebrew name for Simeon, which in turn is based on a Hebrew verb, shamah. And shamah means to hear, to hearken, to be heard or to heed. And he was telling Peter as he looked across that charcoal fire and looked into his eyes, the soul of Peter. He said, listen, Peter, for what I'm about to tell you is very important. The time had come for Jesus to address Peter's deepest wounds. Were it not for the Lord's perfect compassion, the question might have been considered somewhat of a cruel taunt from Jesus to Peter. And he added the phrase, Peter, do you love me more than these? It was unmistakable reference to Peter's bold declaration up in the upper room when he declared that he would go to the death with Jesus. And yet, when he was captured and put on trial, Peter denied him three times. Now, we've looked at the, in the Greek language on the words for love before. Now, one of those words is eros, and it describes a euphoric, in-love feeling of romance, sort of like when you first fall in love with someone, that euphoric feeling. And that's where the word erotic comes from. It's a physical feeling of love. And that's before the honeymoon ends in many marriages. Now, philia is the next form and expresses a warm compassion shared among friends or affection among close friends and family members. And it's even among romantic spouses and couples. After the eros love wears out and dies down to have a lasting relationship, you must have that filio love. The verb filio means to treat someone as one's own people, to treat someone as you would like to be treated. And the Greeks highly regarded philia as a deeply emotional connection between people. And then the third word for love is agape. Now, it's rarely found outside Jewish and Christian literature, and that's interesting. And unlike the short-lived eros love, agape is not impetuous. It's a steady, a deliberate love, a choice of love. Where philia describes an affection, agape speaks of loyalty. Here is a love that makes a distinction, choosing the objects of their love freely. Hence, it's especially the love of a higher person for a lower person. It's an active but not self-seeking love. The New Testament writer drew upon the word to express the love that Jesus had for his disciples, a love that Jesus taught about. Agape means to love God first, to love neighbor as yourself, and to love your enemies and friends alike. While more intensely emotive 
Agape is not fueled by emotions itself. The Christ-like love places a higher valuable value on the tangible expression of kindness rather than that of emotion that may accomplish little. So agape love is a choice, a choice to be kind to one another, to treat others with more respect than even yourself. Now Jesus asked Simon about agape, and Simon responded with philia. Scholars and expositors disagree about the significance of the different terms that was chosen by John in his narrative. To render their conversation from Aramaic into Greek, I don't think John's choice of those Greek terms was by mistake at all. On the contrary, I'm convinced that his word choice reflects the sentiments between Peter and Jesus. Know the pattern of their dialogue. Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. And then Jesus said, feed my lambs. Second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And Jesus says, take care of my sheep. Simon, son of John, a third time, do you phileo me? Now, Jesus changed his word for love. Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. The confidence and the passion that it earlier fueled Peter's decisions, both wise and foolish, both heroic and cowardly, had been crushed out of him by this point. The impulsive zeal distracted Peter from acknowledging a lifelong problem that Peter had. As long as there were external foes to fight, challenges to meet, difficulties to overcome, and quandaries to solve, he didn't have to face who he really was. In fact, he now realized he was quite powerless. And that was until Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit of God filled Peter and he became bold, but bold with God's power and not his own. Now, Peter's philia fell short of what either Peter or Jesus desired, but he deserves high marks for being truly honest about this. Furthermore, acknowledges the truth of Peter's love. His affection for Jesus could not be denied. He did have Jesus' Jesus's love in him. But he was powerless to avoid future failure, and he knew it within himself. Now, that proud self-confidence thing of the past was a thing of the past. Peter was ready to depend upon the Lord to accomplish his ministry now. And when God's Holy Spirit came upon him at Pentecost, Peter became bold, but bold with agape love, love as Jesus had. Now, just as Jesus gently rescued Thomas, who was all last week from his hopelessness, or perhaps his dogged pragmatism, the Lord pulled Peter from his despair in this passage. He invited that humble disciple to recast his nets now, not for fish, but this time for people's souls. And as we move on to verses 18 and 19, this was after they had finished their breakfast of fish and bread, and they were walking along the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. And I suspect Jesus allowed time for this invitation to sink in after telling Peter, do you love me, three times, and allowing that to gestate within Peter so he fully understood what Jesus wanted. He was now ready, after dealing with his past, to reveal Peter's future. In the past, Simon, 
was self-confident, a willful man who directed his own life. He even attempted discipleship on his own terms, but with tragic results as he denied his Lord. He behaved like a coward to distance himself from Christ. And following this disappointment, while Peter was at the lowest depths of his despair and discouragement, Jesus assured Peter that he would have a Christworthy death. His reference to those outstretched arms alludes to him being laid on the cross. The verb translated to dress literally means to fasten. And it's a clever pun, obviously referring to how he was going to be fastened with either nails or ropes to the cross. In the past, Simon Peter decided what to wear, where to go, and in the future, Peter would submit to the leading of his master, Jesus. That encouragement would help him to wear that cross that he was called to wear, to submit to that leading of his master, to have an honorable death. Jesus punctuated his encouragement with these two words to Peter. He said, follow me. And it's a command reminiscent of Simon's original calling when he called him the first time. And as we move on to the last three verses in this passage, verses 20 through 23, the conversation between the master and the servant took place as they strolled along that Sea of Galilee. Peter noticed John, who was following along a little bit behind them. Of all the disciples, though, John behaved most honorably. Now, he did flee in the Garden of Gethsemane, as all the disciples did. As, but soon he returned and remained close to Jesus. Throughout his trial and crucifixion, he was beside Jesus. Simon, While Simon kept his distance and then denied his discipleship in that courtyard, John stood beside Jesus in that courtroom. While Simon cowered at the crucifixion, John was standing right beside Jesus' mother, prepared to take care of her, and beside as close to Jesus as he could get. Now, personal failure always leads to comparisons. We either push down others so that we can feel a little bit better about ourselves, or we put it, bury our shame in the bottom of the world. Neither response is from God. So when Peter said, Lord, what about him? Referring to John, Peter was indicating John at that point. Jesus rebuked Peter's question by saying, in effect, you do what you're supposed to do and let me manage John. He repeated his earlier call with even a greater emphasis at that point as he stopped and looked at Peter and says, you must follow me. Now, John concludes his description of their encounter with this humorous footnote. Long before he prepared his narrative, remember John prepared his gospel right at the end of his life. He had experienced so much by that time. And this particular story circulated throughout oral history between that time and when John wrote this gospel. Peter undoubtedly told, his, told it often the story as a means of encouraging those who were down and out as believers because he at one time was down and out, but he had overcome it through the power of God. Moreover, Peter spent much time of his later life tackling false teachers, especially concerning the gospel of Christ. So he probably relished the irony of the story, and he put down the error that had arisen involving himself. Now, many people took Jesus' correction of Peter to mean that he planned to return before John died. But believers during John's lifetime it was just a wishful hope that Jesus would soon return before John expected lifetime or lifespan would end so that he 
wanted him to return soon. And they use Jesus' support or comments to support that wish that they had. But John's comment clarifies before his death that this was just a false rumor. And that's not what the Lord really said. He said, if I wanted him to remain alive, what is that to you? Now, in the corporate world, like all kingdoms of the world, we look for leaders among them who are exceptional, have exceptional natural abilities. Nations look for people with charisma and innate people skills for their politicians. The military has adopted a motto, up or out, because officers are expected to continue to rise through the ranks until they can rise no further, and then they're expected to retire. In virtually every sphere of life, a significant failure means either termination of that position or at least a demotion. Shape up or ship out, it's said. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. Peter emerged from his failure as a transformed man, ready to acknowledge his inability and ready to exchange his self-confidence for Christ's confidence. With the sound of those miracle hall of fish flapping in the, in the background, Peter was finally prepared to accept the Lord's call this time. As Jesus told him, you keep following me. Have you failed the Lord? I know I have at times in my life. And because of that, this call is for you and it's for me to keep on following, to keep on keeping on, to keep moving forward. So what's the application of John chapter one, verse one through 23 today? And it's coming to terms with your calling in life. Unfortunately, in Christian circles, we tend to think of full-time vocational ministers as being called by God. However, they are not the only people who are called by God to fulfill a divine purpose. All believers have been called to glorify God in whatever he has called them to do. Therefore, I think it's, ex it's expected and appropriate to extend that calling to each one of us, to every vocation that we might choose as a believer that's our calling. I've been in business all of my adult life, and I'm still doing full-time business along with speaking at Putnam on the weekends. But my calling is bigger than either one of those. My calling is to be about building God's kingdom. Now, I can do it through business, and I can do it through ministry. Neither one is more important than the other. But my calling, as your calling is, is to build God's kingdom. With that in mind, let me offer three thoughts from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 23, to help us to come to terms with each of our callings. First, we must come to terms with our own limitations. While we should do our best and continually pursue excellence, never forget that, ultimately, success is not up to us. Peter and his business partners ran a lucrative fishing business, an enterprise, and they were experts in their vocation. They had years of experience, all the right equipment that they needed, but on this day, their nets were empty under their own power. Only when the Lord's help did the men find success. The miracle hall of fish illustrated that without the Lord's help, our expertise and our diligence will come to nothing. And the second point is, we must come to terms with our priorities in life. All believers are called to make disciples, to build God's kingdom. And as citizens of God's kingdom, we're commissioned to make disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And regardless how each of us earn a living, our calling 
is to build God's kingdom. Moreover, we have been called to bring glory to God in whatever we do, as we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether we're a student or a tradesman, a homemaker, a professional, a minister, a laborer, a retiree, whatever you do, do it heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, as we're told in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. And the third point is, we must come to terms with our own imperfections. Peter laid aside his calling of catching men, as he was instructed in Luke chapter 5, verse 10, because of his failure as a disciple, and he took up a vocation which failure, he thought, would be less damaging to the kingdom. That was his way of thinking. But we must fully understand that all of our work, regardless of what we do, is kingdom work. What well, we, he wanted, what well, we might want to put it in the past so we have a better, lesser future, Jesus met Peter head on. He didn't deny, he didn't minimize or rationalize or ignore Peter's failure. Jesus met Peter where he was. He emphasized three times, each time to that dejected disciples to feed or take care of my sheep or lambs. The Lord said in effect, yes, Peter, you blew it and you'll blow it again. Nevertheless, I want you to fulfill my calling, your calling. Failure is inevitable. I have failed in business. I have failed at times as a parent, as a husband, as in the ministry. But that doesn't mean I can quit. That doesn't mean I can give up. It's not as though Jesus, who called us, didn't know what our future would be. With our penalty of sin paid in full, failure for us as a believer is just a reminder to depend on Jesus Christ for our strength, to repen- depend on him rather to depend on self. It's to replace self-confidence with Christ's confidence. And we spent a year absorbing the good news according to John the Apostle. And last, next week is our last message on it. It's our two final verses, John chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. And the title of next week's message will be Many Other Signs, Many Other Things. It'll be a short message because we're just covering the last two verses. Then after that, we're going to go into what does God want? So I hope you'll join us next week. In preparation for that, read John chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. Let us close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time where we can go through your word and study it, the failures of Peter, but the restoration of Peter. At times we will fail, Father, but we know that you will restore us. Let us realize that our calling is to do the will of the Father. Our calling is to make disciples, to build God's kingdom here on earth, Father. Let us do so with vigor. Let us do so in a manner that's glorifying to you. Help us to be perfect imagers as Christ is imager of you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, 
Let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.